I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Welcome back for another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show. I'm Ian Mendes alongside Sean McAdoo. Ahead on today's episode, we'll chat about Mike Babcock breaking his silence. We'll get our first taste of McDavid Matthews, and I think it was a little bit underwhelming. I'll also float my idea for realigning the divisions using the NFL model. Jesse Granger stops by for some betting and fantasy tips in Granger Things, and we tackle some of your questions in our inbox and a little This Week in NHL History features... Neil Sheehy. That's right, Neil Sheehy. Uh, but Sean's going to fill us in on that. Uh, first of all, Sean, we were so hyped. We were so pumped. We're like, McDavid, Matthews this is like, what, the first of nine meetings this is going to be awesome. And then, and then what happened? And, and then we got arguably the worst game of the NHL season so far. That was awful between Edmonton and Toronto. I mean, we, we were all looking forward to this. Before even the schedule came out, as soon as you started hearing about an all-Canadian division, you're thinking Matthews versus McDavid, Dreisaitl versus Marner, you know, all the offense, all of the skill that would be in those games that we usually get to see a couple times a year. Now it's going to be over and over again. And it was it was a dud. And, and it was one that we probably should have seen coming because both the Leafs and the Oilers have been involved in some higher scoring games they've been inconsistent there's been criticism of the defensive side of things so it maybe it wasn't hard to see coming that both those teams would come out and focus on keeping it simple and playing the conservative way but oh my goodness if you were a fan or a potential fan a new fan who sat down and said all right i'm gonna i'm gonna give this nhl thing a try i hear these teams are both stacked with offensive talent and you watch that game uh, goodbye, because you're you're never coming back to to see more of that product. Is there a potential that that game yesterday got you thinking about a new column, ten worst games involving the Maple Leafs and Canadian opponents? Yeah, I, I mean, I had the the best wins and the worst losses, but I didn't do the flat out worst quality. Uh, that would not be a hard one to a hard list to go down. I mean, geez, the the the, the pretty much the entire nineteen eighties were were pretty awful games, but usually they were awful games, uh, at, at least in in the sense of being bad for one. The thing that frustrates me about games like last night, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I feel like hockey is the only sport, and the NHL is the only big pro league where two teams with a ton of offensive skill, could play a game that was that boring and that low scoring and come out of it feeling good about themselves. Like, that's the key. You never know in sports, right? Like, the Kansas City Chiefs could play the New Orleans Saints with a ton of weapons on the field, and that game could end 6-3. to three. That's sports, right? You never know how the ball's going to bounce. You never know how the breaks are going to go. It, it could happen. But I guarantee Andy Reid is not going to get up after that game, stand up at the podium and say, yeah, we're thrilled with the way that went. He'll be happy to take the win, but he's not going to sit there and go, yeah, we want to win six to three. He's going to say, I got all these weapons. We got to go back and figure out what went wrong and why, why we weren't able to create a lot more offense. And, and that's how just about any other sport would work. And yet you've got a situation where two teams that are just that, that are stacked with offensive talent have built their teams around offensive talent, go out and play a game that's two to one until an empty net goal at the end. And the Oilers are probably thrilled with it. The Leafs, obviously, you'd rather win. But I don't think the Leafs are getting bag skated for playing a 2-1 game today. 
this is just the nature of the NHL right now. Low scoring, low event, keep it down, be conservative. And it's just, it's, you understand it when there's certain teams. Some teams have to play that style. That's the way it should work. But when you see two teams that are built the way the, the Leafs and the Oilers are, serve up a game like that, oh my goodness, what a missed opportunity. And and what a, what a, and my condolences to anyone who sat through two and a half hours of that last night. Well, I think that was one of those games that was nationally televised in the United States, right? Because they're billing it as McDavid. It's and a showcase Matthews. game. It's, it's a, the, this is where the NHL always falls short is we don't market the stars enough. And that includes the rules and that includes all of it. It's okay to make the rules so that it it is disproportionately in favor of McDavid and, and, and Crosby. And it's okay. That's why we pay to go to see the games is to see the, the $10 million players be $10 million players. Here's what I would love. One week of the year, you get to play without coaches. Like every, yes. everyone, like, you know, how every week, every, the NFL does what players get their cleats. You get one week for your, I would just want one week in the NHL, the players, there's no coaches. Wouldn't you just be so curious? I, I would love that because I, I blame the coaches for this. The, the, the whole, this whole problem, uh, if you accept that it, it is a problem with the, the defensive approach, I initially blame Gary Bettman and the leadership, of the NHL in the mid nineties for not seeing what was happening and taking action then. But since then, it's it's become a coaching issue. And I, I'll go you one further. I have made this suggestion. This is a legitimate suggestion. I would actually love to see the NHL do this. You get one coach on the bench. That's it. You get one guy. You can have assistant coaches. You can have whatever when you're running practice and everything. But there's one guy behind the bench. And he's got to do the lines. He's got to do everything. Okay? Hmm. Let's get a little bit of case. These guys are, hey, these are the high-paid, big, uh, big-shot coaches. Let's make them actually earn it. You don't have... Four guys down there looking at iPads, telling you whether to review something that was offside by a fraction of an inch. You don't have all this. You got one guy back there running the show. Would it make his job a lot harder? Yeah, we need to make these guys' jobs harder because they're so good at their jobs that they can take all the hockey talent in the world and turn it into something like that. There were only two people on the entire planet that were really, really thrilled with that game last night. It was probably the two coaches behind the bench. Yeah, you know what? It's a great... It's a great point that you bring up. I forget. I always forget. You just love chaos. You love embracing yeah. chaos. Anything Team that's going to lead to yeah. controversy and, and and that type of thing is great. Hey, while we're on the topic of the Maple Leafs and coaches, let's get right into Mike Babcock, uh, Sean, breaking his silence uh, with our Pierre Lebrun uh, earlier this week in a... Um, in an article because, look, I think Babcock knows he's going to be on NBC on Sunday and he's going to have to speak. So he, he chooses Pierre Lebrun, decides to speak out uh, about what happened with the Marner situation, a little bit about Johan Franzen. I saw a real mixed bag of reviews. And, and that's really what social media is, isn't it? Like some people mm-hmm. are like, hey, good for him for speaking out. Other people are like, hey, if you didn't reach out to Marner and Franzen uh, directly, you're doing this all wrong. What like did you have an initial takeaway? Did your thoughts change about the Babcock article? Um, you know, twenty four hours after it came out. Yeah, I mean he he had to do it. This is if he's going to make any sort of comeback in the hockey world as a coach or even as a broadcaster, he he had to address it. And okay, he gave his explanation for why it had taken so long. That's fine, but once you you come back into the public eye, you've you've got to address it. Uh, and and let's be real honest. There would be a lot of people on both sides uh, who had their mind made up before they read one word that he had to say. There are lots of people in the hockey world who are absolutely ready to forgive and forget. And let's just forget any of this even happened. And they're willing to welcome Mike Babcock back with open arms. And there's a lot of people who won't be willing to do that under any circumstances, no matter what he said. And, and that's fine. Um, as far as anyone who is in the middle and potentially waiting to have their opinion shifted. I don't think he did a great job of bringing them on board. Uh, I thought his, uh, what he had to say about the Marner situation, uh, I thought was pretty good. That, that you know, his he essentially said, look, it didn't happen exactly the way that has been put out there, but I take responsibility. I screwed up. I knew it right away. Here's what I did at the time to try to fix it. Uh, and here's here's what I've learned from it. Um, but then he gets into the Franzen situation and it it just it felt as if he was centering himself in the situation more than 
more than he was Johan Franzen and, and the, the players who had seen that. And, and that was the far more serious situation. I know Mitch Marner is because it's Toronto and because it was the first thing that came out gets the attention. But the, the Franzen accusations, allegations were far more serious as, as far as how he was treating players. And uh, I, I felt like that fell a little bit flat. So I, I don't imagine that there's too many people that have changed their minds based on this. Uh, he did have to do it. It, it as far as coming back. It, he does check one of the boxes that he needed to do. And there may be some people in the NHL GMs who have coaching vacancies who will say, that's all I needed to see from this guy. I'm ready to bring him back. Um, but for, for others who maybe were waiting to see a little bit more uh, introspection, a little bit more uh, careful thought about what had happened. I, I don't think they got it from that interview. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see the first team. And I don't feel like there's any coaches on the hot seat per se. And and even in the 56-game season, you wonder, are we going to see any coaching changes uh, during the season? I wonder, though, if he comes back next year. I, I feel like next season, look, by the by the time we get between now and June, July, whenever the season wraps up, He's going to have how many appearances on NBC? He's going to like he's going to be back. It'll kind of be a little bit of the Mike Babcock rehabilitation tour. Yep. And look, I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm all for giving people second chances. I, I think if you just dismiss people when they made a mistake, I think you're doing it wrong. But you have to show some like legit contrition, some legit I want to be better. And, and look, we're not going to get that from an art. Like it's it's all about the actions, right? So look, he, Mike Babcock to me, Sean has six months to kind of put himself out there, try and rehabilitate his image and, and we'll see. But I, I kind of feel like this guy's going to be behind the bench in October of 2021 coaching a team. Yeah. You know what? That's, that's probably the most likely scenario, assuming that he wants to do it, assuming that NBC goes well, that he doesn't uh, either on NBC or elsewhere say or do something that would, that would put him, uh, put him back. I mean, he kind of said it himself in the interview. The odds of him coaching this year are pretty slim. There's a good chance a lot of people think that we'll go through this whole season with no coaching changes just because of the circumstances. I mean, who who wants to bring in, with, with all the chaos that's going on this year, who wants to bring in somebody new to make a big change uh, in the middle of it? But that might mean that some guys who are on very thin ice make it through the season and then we get a bunch of openings in the offseason. And yeah, I mean, he he interviewed reportedly for the Washington job. So he's he's already back in the game in that sense, uh, didn't get that job. I, I think he'll certainly be a candidate for uh, for other ones. And uh, yeah, I, I think that behind the bench on opening night next year, probably uh, probably a pretty good chance. Um, but I do think he's got still some more work to do uh, to, uh, to earn back that trust of the people doing the hiring and then also of the fans, the media, and everyone who's going who's gonna to be watching it happen. I think it's interesting, too, when you think about it from just a COVID logistical perspective. If you're going to bring in a new coach from outside your organization, theoretically, they would have like a two-week quarantine. and like They could, yeah. Imagine, like, imagine you're a coach, you're like, you know, and you're like, hey, we, we want to re- replace, or your general manager, we want to replace our head coach. And let's say you want to bring in Mike Babcock. Like, what are the protocols of like bringing this guy into your bubble? It's probably a two-week quarantine and maybe the other head coach who's on the hot seat's like, oh, what's Mike Babcock doing in that room by himself <laughs> uh, in the arena? Yeah. All isolated. Yeah, anyway, I'm sure something's that's, up. Yeah. I'm sure that's unrelated to what's going on. I, I thought it was interesting too, in that LeBron article, he broached the idea of would Mike Babcock be open to coaching Team Canada at the Olympics um, uh, next year? Again, provided those Olympics uh, go off without a hitch. You know, Babs led them to a, a title in 2010. And a, and, a, and a gold medal story in 2010 and 2014. And he was kind of of the mindset of, you know what, I've had my time. I'm ready to hand it off, whether it's a Trotz or a Quenville or a Cassidy, whoever it is, I don't know. If all things were being equal and, and Mike Babcock said, you know, I, I could do it and maybe I'd focus all my energy on that between now and 2022, would you think that that would be a good idea for Hockey Canada? I know, I know it's, a, it's a, a, like a, a fictitious scenario here, but... Would that have been a good idea? Yeah, I, it would be interesting to see because you're right. We typically in the Olympics, you see a coach, uh, they get the job, but their their focus is on the NHL season. And, and there's not a lot of time once they get over there. Uh, I mean, look, the interview, I think that was a case of a guy who already knows that the answer is no. Uh, and so he's getting out ahead of it a little bit rather than uh, let his name stay out there. 
uh, knowing that he's not going to get the job, uh, I think he he sort of understands how the how the cards come down on this one and, and is preemptively uh, taking his name out of the running for a job that he probably wasn't in the running for anyways. I, I don't I would not want to see Team Canada uh, go back to Mike Babcock. I, I think it's there are other guys who who are frankly better coaches right now. There are guys who uh, it's it's their turn. Would there be an advantage to having somebody have the chance to prepare? Maybe, although I'm not sure how much preparation you can really do. I mean, you, you, you can't share it with the players. So, I mean, even if you show up in China with a full game plan, all ready to go and realized you still got a couple of days to to teach that to a team. So I don't know. That, that maybe gives you a little bit of an advantage. It's not much of one. It's not enough to make me want to go back to a Mike Babcock over any number of other guys that you mentioned that uh, I think are more deserving at this point. Yeah. Quenville would be my guy. I think that, you know what, he won those cups in Chicago and he's got a great resume. My biggest fear as a Canadian hockey fan is that like Latvia or somebody will get Barry Trotz and they're like, you know, Barry Trotz is going to coach Latvia. And I'm like, I would want nothing to do with facing Mm -hmm. a Barry Trotz team in a one-off elimination, right? If especially if he brings Mitch Korn with him yeah. and they they do the little goalie magic wand thing that uh, turns turns everybody into Hasek, uh, yeah, that that would be scary. We we can get Trotz on there. Quenville probably depends on how this season goes. Uh, I think he, he, he the reputation took a bit of a hit last year. Um, in the first year in Florida, let's see how this year goes. John Cooper's, you know, guys like that. It, it's it's one of those things where it's tough because. You know, the the knock on Mike Babcock has always been, yeah, good for him. He won a Stanley Cup with an all-star team in Detroit. And he won uh, won gold medals with Team Canada, which may have been the greatest hockey team ever assembled. Like, you know, wow, what a great job by a coach to just tell Sidney Crosby and friends to go out there and, uh, and beat the other teams. And, you know, that's that's fair to an extent, but there is something to be said for being a coach who can get the most out of a championship caliber team. Uh, you know, it, not everyone can do it. And there are good coaches in sports that can do that, that maybe don't do it with the other teams. But when when you've got the all-star team, that it's, you know, it's the Cito-Gaston syndrome, right? Like you, if you've got, there's certain guys that they can put you over the edge when you're already ready to win. Uh, I, it's going to be interesting to see them try to figure out who that is in the NHL. But yeah, Quenville would be absolutely a uh, uh, a guy who uh, would fit that mold uh, really well. And and it, he's he's been waiting for his opportunity. Yeah, and listen, we know when we get to the Olympics next year, Alex Ovechkin's going to be uh, front and center at uh, at the Olympic Games. He's front and center again uh, this week, Sean. Uh, not, I mean, listen, we saw it play out with Dallas, and we've seen it uh, with the Carolina Hurricanes, and now the Washington Capitals, the latest team in the forefront of this. And um, it looks like, I, I guess, irresponsibility or recklessness would be the word to uh, describe what happened with Alex Ovechkin and his teammates, right? Yeah, that, that's that's exactly it. At this point, as we're recording this on Thursday morning, I haven't seen anything to indicate that there is an actual outbreak situation with the with the Washington Capitals. I, I haven't seen anything about any positive tests. I haven't seen anything like that. It sounds like what happened was there were the four players who got together in the hotel without masks, just socializing, stuff that would be completely ordinary for for players to do in a regular situation but they have been told uh, with the covid protocols that this is this is not allowed you, you basically you go back to your room and you are on your own uh, and there's no socializing that happens outside of the rink uh, even even just in the hotel and I know that strikes a lot of people as odd there's a, I've seen a lot of reactions from caps fans and otherwise saying wait a second these guys can go in a dressing room together. They can get dressed, they can go out, they can practice, they can sit on a bench together, they can play a hockey game together, but then they can't sit and watch TV in someone's hotel room or they can't play play cards in someone's hotel room. And yeah, I mean, maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense, but the reality is there are, there are protocols in place, there are rules in place, they're there for a reason, even if they're not necessarily exactly the right ones. And you would expect your players, especially your leaders, to be respecting those and to be following those and not putting each other at risk uh, of a situation where now, you know, we, we don't necessarily know if these players are going to be available for the next game. And, you know, as it turned out, there was a few days between games, but if there had been a game the next night, you know, it's, 
it's just not worth it. And and the caps take a big fine. Um, uh, I'm sure there are bigger ones in the future. And it's it's going to be interesting to watch because we saw in the NFL that some teams were very strict on this and some teams were not. E- even stuff as simple as coaches wearing their masks properly on the sidelines. There were some teams that really didn't seem to put much priority on it and others that, uh, that, that did. And some teams got burned by it. You know, the situation with the Broncos having no quarterback, the situation with some other teams missing key guys. Um, this is the sort of thing where I think you got to just get the leadership of your team together and go, guys, it is not worth it. Let's just follow the rules, whether we like them or not. Uh, and let's just get through this without being the next team that gets caught up in something like this. You know, we actually have a, a question from a, a, a listener here, which I think actually ties into all of this and it kind of works into, uh, the Washington capital situation and, and COVID. And this one, um, this one comes into uh, from Mitch to us, Sean, it says, I'm curious if you guys think uh, individual player records are going to be impacted by all of the COVID issues. As hockey fans, how do we feel about this? Let's say Phil Kessel or Keith Yandel, for example, are unable to break Doug Jarvis's consecutive game streak because they got sick. Well, maybe that's one thing. But what about uh, if they're prevented from playing for out of an abundance of caution and then they don't get the they don't reach the mark? And for example, too. Guys, what if Alex Ovechkin ends his career with about 880 goals? Would you guys be willing to say that COVID cost him the goals record? It's a great question because there, yeah. there are some, some records. I know you, you've talked about Patrick Barlow and what he's trying to chase down and um, consecutive game streak and OV. Those would probably be the top three. But shortened seasons and canceled games are probably going to have an impact on some individual records, right? They will, and, and they already have, right? I mean, we've... We've already seen uh, three lockouts and we've seen a season last year that was shortened by COVID. So we're already at a point where, you know, when you look back at Alexander Ovechkin, you're going to say he lost his rookie season. He lost half a season uh, to in 2012-13. He lost however many games uh, from last year and this year. And yeah, it, it is going to be uh, a situation where that those games could have made the difference. Now, Obviously, you're going across eras. There's a million different ways you could slice and dice it and say, "Well, yeah, but but Wayne Gretzky didn't have this, or you know, there there's it's it's always tough to compare. But yeah, it it could have an impact certainly with those games played, records, and streaks. Uh, I, I mean, in a weird way, it, COVID kind of saved the Keith Yandel Ironman streak because he wasn't going to play. And then it sort of flipped at the last minute and he played. And it was only because of Dallas missing games that Florida had the first game delayed until Sunday that that uh, kept uh, Keith Yandel from missing games. You know, I I don't know. It's just it's kind of one more thing. And, yeah, you're right. There, there's going to be times where we look back and you're going to hear somebody say that, uh, you know, well, you know, Austin Matthews never scored 50 goals. And you're going to go, yeah, but he had 48 when the season got stopped. Uh, at 70 games in uh, because of COVID. He had however many this year. Presumably, there's not going to be any 50-goal scorers this year. Um, you know, any anything like that. If it, Ultimately, it doesn't matter in the sense that it's it will hopefully be the same for all the teams. But if you're the sort of fan who, who likes this stuff and likes the record books and the streaks and all of this, it, yeah, it, it does. It, it's, it's messing with it big time. Yeah, I think with, with Ovechkin in particular... Like you said, he, he would have come in in 0405. That's 82 games. Mm-hmm. Uh, another 48 uh, in, or another whatever, 30 some odd games he missed, 34, I guess. Like it's almost two seasons of his career, arguably in his prime. Like even if you conservatively gave him 75 goals, like, boy, that's getting him right into, into Gretzky territory yep. now that he's north of 700, right? Like it's a, it's a legitimate mm-hmm. question. And, I, and by the way, just as we're wrapping up this thought, what did you make of the whole Keith Yandel situation of not only this guy goes from healthy scratch to all of a sudden he's like he's scoring he's scoring left, right, and center yeah. for the, the Panthers doesn't feel like he's gonna be coming out of the lineup anytime soon, right? No, I don't think he will. And and I don't think you know I, I don't think any of us know the full situation that was going on behind the scenes there. Um you know, Keith Yandel is one of the Panthers' six best defensemen. I, I don't think maybe he's not what he was a few years ago. Uh, this is still a good player, and this is a guy who contributed, at least on, on the offensive side still. It feels like there was more going on, and maybe it was just as simple as you've got new leadership comes into an organization, and they say, you know, we, we've, got to, we've got to pick a few fights to wake some people up, and maybe that was just one they decided to pick. And it sounded like even heading into camp, they were sending the message to him that he probably wasn't going to play, and 
uh, and then for it to all kind of play out the way that it did. Uh, best case scenario, maybe it's a situation where the message was that was trying to be sent was received. Uh, and the player actually didn't have to miss games for that to happen, and, and now everyone moves on. And worst case is it becomes something that sort of uh, turns into a soap opera that we follow with the Panthers for for the next few weeks at least. Hmm. Panthers and soap opera doesn't seem like a, a couple of words that go together, but uh... no, not really. All right, Sean, it is time for us. As you can hear the theme music going, it's Granger things. I can hear the groans uh, coming from uh, from both of you, but that's just fine. Granger Things is where we bring in our Jesse Granger, uh, who covers the uh, Golden Knights in Vegas to talk all things uh, kind of betting, fantasy, and maybe even the Golden Knights as well. Jesse Granger, how are you doing on this Thursday? Excellent. How are you guys? Doing good. Doing good. All right. Hey, let's, I know look, we're only a week into the season, but this is the, the point in time where people are starting to look for some trends. And um, this is the first season of this kind of baseball style schedule. So let's start there, Jesse. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, maybe when we're seeing teams play each other two three times in a row, um, sometimes people think, okay, well, if you've played each other in the first game, the second game is going to be lower scoring. Are we, are we seeing that play itself out in the early part of the season? Right. Not just, and not just betters. Um, I've heard it like Pete DeBoer has referenced it a couple times. Um, just me covering the Golden Knights here. He, he mentioned that as these little miniature playoff series, as he likes to call them, as they go on, um, the games will get tighter checking, they'll get lower scoring. And then you would think as a better, okay, maybe look for those unders in that second game when those teams play each other twice. But so far, I mean, we're still early. Um, that hasn't really been the case. In 32 games where teams are playing each other for the first time in this season, um, it's been an average of 6.09 goals per game, which is right about on that line. Most over-unders are going to be around that six or six and a half. So you're not getting much of an edge there. The over-under total on those games is 17 have gone over, 14 have gone under, and one push. So 54% of the time they're going over, about half. Second time they play each other, that's happened 22 times, and there's been an average of 5.81 goals, which sounds like it's less. I mean, it's 0.2 goals less. That's a noticeable difference. But you have to remember that the betting market is also making up for that. Vegas is lowering those lines a little bit. So the over-under on those games, once again, 54%, the exact same percentage as the first one. So yes, the second game of these series might be a little tighter checking so far, but to this point the odds makers have kind of made up for that um, small, small difference. So you're not really getting any value at all betting the under in those second games. So my suggestion would be, at least for now, while we wait for some more games to come in and some more data to track, I would just maybe caution people who are betting blindly on that if, if you're saying, okay, man, it was 11 goals last night between Montreal and Vancouver. They're definitely going to have a much tighter checking game. We're going to see a three to one game. I'm betting the under that hasn't really been the case to this point, at least to that extreme. I, I know Sean's lock of the week is Edmonton, Toronto, the second game, take the over, right? Take the, the, the lock is whenever I start complaining about low scoring hockey, take the over on the next night's game so that everybody can come back to me and go, hey, man, I thought uh, I thought we were in the middle of a dead puck era after the Leafs have beaten the Oilers nine to eight. Yeah, so let, let's uh, let's stay on that theme, Jesse, and talk a little bit about uh, favorites and underdogs. And again, it's a different type of setup this year in the NHL. Uh, two, three, and sometimes you're going to see four game uh, series with teams. What are we seeing early on in terms of uh, are the favorites winning the first game and then the the underdogs the second, vice versa? Any any trends that we're seeing so far? Right, yeah, and and like you mentioned, four games. It's it's pretty crazy when these teams are going to play each other four times. The team I cover, the Golden Knights, is in the midst of that. Uh, they will they and the Coyotes will be the first teams in NHL history to play four straight games against each other in the regular season. They played the first two at T-Mobile and then uh, finishing that last one up last night, and they played two more down in Arizona. And so far, the favorites, the the, the first and second legs of these back to backs. I guess they're not back to back, but mini miniseries, it really hasn't made that much of a difference. The favorites are performing a little better in the second game. Um, so maybe you, the, it takes these teams a little time to, to adjust to each other. The coaches make adjustments and the better team seems to have a slight advantage in the second game. Um, in the first game of these legs, the favorites are winning 60.7% of the time. So they're 17 and 11. And then in the second leg, they're 15 and seven, which is a 68%. So 8% difference um, in betting terms. That's, that's a pretty noticeable difference this early in the season. So it's something to keep an eye on. On. Um, but for me, what, what really stood out um, was and, and where I found a really strong trend in, in this kind of looking at the two games compared was when a favorite loses the first game of the series, um, a, a team comes in and upsets them. That favorite is six and zero 
in the second game of that series. So you look at Vancouver upset Edmonton early on, Oilers come back and win the next game. Everyone remembers St. Louis's big win over the Colorado Avalanche on opening night. Everyone made a big deal out of that. What happened the second game? Colorado won eight to nothing. Um, same thing happened with San Jose and Arizona. Ottawa shocked Toronto in their first game. The Leafs yep. came back, took care of business. Last night, the latest case of that, we saw it. The Anaheim Ducks um, upset the Wild in their first game, one to nothing. Last night, Minnesota, you wouldn't think of Minnesota as like a commanding favorite. Oh, they're definitely going to win the second game. But still, they were a slight favorite. They win to go to 6-0. and um, Like I said, favorites after being upset in that first game have been perfect so far this season. Okay. Well, listen, as we wrap up with you, Jesse, a uh, quick thought on the Golden Knights. You mentioned they're kicking off a four-game uh, set against Arizona. Uh, Robin Leonard, Marc-Andre Fleury, we all thought this could be one of the most compelling storylines in the National Hockey League. Leonard started two games so far. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury won, if I'm not mistaken. Am, am I right on that? He just, he just started his second. So they've oh, started, started second. So, but like, what's the feeling in that market? Like, does it feel like it's a goalie controversy waiting to boil over? Or is that whole situation, has that ship sailed on that? Um, I think it's, it just depends on who you ask. Um, I think there is a huge... Alan Walsh. Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> Definitely controversy if we go there. It's, I mean, Flurry has a massive fan base here, just like he did in Pittsburgh. He is one of the most popular players in the league uh, around the NHL in any city, and and in this city, he's extremely popular. So there are there is a faction of the fan base that wants Mark Andre Flurry starting every night. There is a faction of the fan base that that thinks Leonard is better, and he's younger, and his stats have been better these last couple of years. So there are, there is some. Some goalie controversy, but for the most part, the way Peter DeBoer's handled it is he, he said before the season started, we're going to play these guys 50-50 for a certain amount of time. And then at some point, and we haven't decided where that point will be yet, but at some point we're going to choose one and that'll no longer be the case. And if, according to him, all bets are off. So um, it is a goalie competition, even in the words of Pete DeBoer. Um, so they're, they've both been excellent. Um, the Golden Knights have allowed 1.75 goals per game. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury allowed one goal and two goals in his two starts. And Robin Leonard's allowed two goals in each of his starts. So they've, they've both been at the top of their game and the, are, are a big reason the Golden Knights are 4-0 to start the year. Before I go, um, I, so I gave you guys that great trend about the favorites are 6-0 and after losing that first game of the series. And if you want to take advantage of that, we'll just see how this plays out. But these next two nights, um, tonight you have Montreal and, and Vancouver playing again. They just had that thrilling 11-goal overtime game where Vancouver upset Montreal. Tonight, Montreal's a minus-130 favorite, so we'll see if they can keep the favorites rolling on that. And then tomorrow, Edmonton and Toronto play again um, after that thrilling game that Sean was so excited about. Um, and the Leafs are a sizable favorite in that one, minus-155. So if that trend holds, the Leafs should uh, win this one tomorrow night going away. All right. Hey, listen, Jesse, we love these uh, these Thursday visits, and I'm sure as as the season goes on, we're going to get even more information as it pertains to, you know, fantasy, betting, lines, uh, you know, spreads, all that stuff. Uh, appreciate this. Thanks for dropping by, and we'll get you again next, uh, next week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Jesse. All right, Sean, I wanted to talk to you about um, – the column I wrote this week for The Athletic because I know you shot down my uh, Willy Wonka golden ticket idea. We didn't shoot it down. You were, shoot you were it very down. tepid. I, I told your people to call my people. Yeah, and, you know, yeah which is yeah, basically, yeah. yeah, you didn't like the idea. But I'm floating something else because I feel like we're at this point in the NHL. We have these bizarre divisions for this year. We know it's going to be temporary. And next year, it feels like there's going to be a great opportunity. Seattle's coming in and it's a great opportunity for a restart. And my thinking is, and I've thought about this for a long time, why do we have divisions where like Toronto and Ottawa are in the same division as Tampa and Florida? Like, makes little sense to me. I would be on board, and I look at the NFL, and I understand it's a, it's a shortened season, and you only, or a shorter season, you only play once a week. I know you can be more flexible there. But I love the four-team division format. I laid it out for the Athletic uh, this week. And I basically put, you know, Buffalo in the same division as New Jersey, uh, the Islanders and the Rangers, Boston with Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal. Look, it goes on like that. I just want to ask you, big picture, does this idea potentially have some traction or is it as stupid as the Willy Wonka I, uh, golden ticket idea, but you were too polite to say it to me last week? It's, you know, what? I, I think you might be onto something here. I, I think, first of all, if you're the NHL, there are there are a lot worse things you could do than look at the NFL and say what are they doing that maybe we could borrow because there's there's uh, there, there's not the there's a fair amount of daylight 
let's just say between those two leagues as far as uh, as far as audience, as far as the, the success that they're having. Let's see what we can borrow from them. I, I think big picture, yeah, that would be an interesting way to do it. Uh, there, there's nothing uh, that says that there have to be four divisions. There, we've we've seen the NHL go with six for for several years, uh, not all that long ago. Uh, could you slice and dice it even further? Yeah, you you could. It's worked for the NFL, and the and the great thing about it with the NFL is you get these really focused rivalries where, I mean, it's just, you say NFC East and you know that these are, these are the teams that can't stand each other. The fan bases can't stand each other. It just, it builds those, those rivalries really well. Um, where I think it, you run into uh, some questions is when you actually sit down to do it, because the, the interesting thing, and, and you took a run at it and I think it, it came out pretty good, but you, you, there, there really isn't a way to do it without, having a couple of teams that end up separated, a couple of teams that maybe end up in the same division where you're not sure. It, it's interesting to me because there are certain teams that feel like they have so many rivals that they're losing out in something like this. And then there's other teams where you're like, do they even have any rivals? Like, is there, like, who do we put Arizona with? Like, is there a rivalry there Yeah. versus a team like Toronto where it's like, well, you got to have Ottawa, you got to have Montreal, you got to have Boston. Oh, wait a second, what about Buffalo? Buffalo's got to be in... Now you've already got too many teams for a division. So that's the challenge. I think big picture, I kind of like the idea. But then you get down to it and you start trying to figure out how you divide up the teams and it starts getting tricky. Yeah, but I think that's the – like I would rather have divisions of four than divisions of seven or eight. Or or, It's going to have to be eight now, no? Like because of the 32 teams, the only number that's going to work are four divisions of of eight. And I Mm -hmm. just – I feel like we're – we're doing the same thing over again. Like you think of those uh, games. I don't look. Toronto Tampa is a bad example because they're both elite teams. But like Florida Buffalo or Ottawa Tampa, or there's nothing there historically, geographically. Like and mm-hmm. and it's funny. Like people got mad at me in that, and I you knew it would happen uh, in yeah. the column. And they're like, I can't believe. Uh, Colorado's not in the Rocky Mountain division. Like, first of all, I just randomly named those divisions. Yeah. But secondly, we're currently in a situation where. Like landlocked Ottawa is in the Atlantic Division. Like, let's just pump yeah. the brakes on uh, being super picky about uh, the the division names. But I think it can work. Like, I, I guess I, I put it out there because I feel like it's as reasonable of a solution as anything I've seen. And it does feel like with Seattle coming on board in uh, in in the fall. Like we have to settle this now. It can't be like, well, let's try a couple of years of this. Like we need to get mm-hmm. to a point where we're like, this is it. This is the league. Like the NFL doesn't doesn't really change all that much, right? Like yeah, it, and that and that's the thing. That's why the NFL works because there have been so few. I mean, there was Seattle. Jeez, I mean, it was years ago now that that shifted from one conference, but for the most part, it's the same year in and year out. And, and the NHL. They've already said what they're doing or what the plan is for next year, where Arizona is going to move over to the to the central and, and Seattle obviously comes in. And, and Seattle is interesting because when I saw your idea and I saw that you had Toronto, Montreal um, and Ottawa together, I was like, yeah, of course. And then you put the other four Canadian teams together. Perfect. But then, oh, yeah, what about Seattle? Seattle's got to right. be in there with Vancouver. But does Seattle want to be in an otherwise all Canadian division or, you, you know, you, there's there's all sorts of practical things. Anytime you throw an idea out there like this and i know because i do it a lot <laughs> somebody will come in and go the tv networks will never go for it and somebody else will come in and go the gms will never go for it and, and yeah there's there's a lot of people in the hockey world that don't want to see anything change ever but i thought it was an, it was an interesting idea and, and kind of a creative way and i gotta say the thing that i really liked about it was once you had your your eight division format you got into how the playoffs would and you had it reseeding, which is something I've been banging the drum yeah. on for a while now. You did it a little differently than I do, but there's no reason to have two conferences and just one team from each conference. Let's reseed it. And, you know, in your format, Toronto Montreal could play in the Stanley Cup final or you know, whatever two division rivals you want to pick. And and I've been saying that for, for a couple of years now as well. Like, let's let's get rid of this. It's got to be East versus West. Let's at some point in the playoffs, if it's not right at the very beginning, at least in the conference final, let's reseed and, and see what we wind up with. Maybe we get Ovechkin versus Crosby in a Stanley Cup final. Um, let's uh, let's have a format where that's possible. So I, I, I really like that your idea would allow for for that sort of scenario to come in. 
Yeah, and it just feels like we're almost, and it's not like how the league came out of 05, uh, the 0405 lockout, but it really does feel like we're on the precipice of like a new era of the NHL. And, and if it's, it's a lot of it is COVID related, but we're headed to a new era. So to me, why not uh, switch it up and, and the, and the time is right. Hey, let's take some, uh, let's take some of our uh, listener questions in here. And a reminder, you can hit us up uh, via email at the athletic hockey show at gmail.com. That's the athletic hockey show at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail, 845-445-8459. We still haven't come up with something catchy for that. Don't worry. Still working on it. It's on the list of things uh, to do. Let's start with this one from Gordon in Calgary. Sean wants to know, should the winner of the uh, All-Canadian North Division this year be presented with the O'Brien Trophy? I love this question. This is is such a great question. For for those who don't know, and I'm assuming that's roughly 99%, of hockey fans uh, who have never heard of the O'Brien Trophy. This is not the NBA's O'Brien Trophy, by the way. This is uh, this is the the NHL uh, had and presumably still has uh, something called the O'Brien Trophy, and it actually predates the NHL. It used to be the championship trophy of the old NHA, which was the league that came before the NHL. Uh, once the NHL started, they they went through a few decades actually where they kind of used the O'Brien trophy for all sorts of different things and, and just changed it every few years. It was for a while, it was the NHL championship back when the Stanley cup was, was separate from, from the NHL. Uh, it was for a lot of years, it was awarded to the runner up for the Stanley cup, which is something I think most people don't know that, that the NHL used to do that. Your, your grandparents tell you your generation is the participation trophy generation. No, <laughs> you tell them that there used to be a trophy for coming in second uh, in a league of six teams. So uh, that was the O'Brien. And for a while, what I assume Gordon is getting at here is there was a Canadian division in the NHL and they started giving the O'Brien trophy to the winner of that Canadian division. Uh, I, yeah, I'm all for it. Let's let's find this thing, first of all. If, if it's uh, it, Hockey Hall of Fame's probably got it up in an attic somewhere in, in a cardboard box with cobwebs on it. Let's break it out. Yeah, let's let's give it to the winner of the Canadian uh Canadian division, and uh, and then we can throw it back in storage for a, a few more decades. I, yeah, so I looked it up. I mean, again, this is all according to Wikipedia. It says the Hockey Hall of Fame has it in its collection somewhere. So yeah, yeah. Be listen. It's a it's a neat idea. Like I saw people saying they they should uh, with the with the CFL on pause, the team that wins the division should win the Grey Cup or whatever. But I I think this O'Brien Trophy is is it's perfect. It, I it, will be honest with you. I have no idea what it looks like. Uh, I have yeah. No there's idea. a picture of it on skater. Okay, I'll, on I'll, Wikipedia. I'll, is it something you could skate around? Is it, uh, you know, I, I, I guess you can't really pass it around and drink I, out of it these days. But I just want to picture like, and it wouldn't even be Gary Bettman. And it wouldn't even be Bill Daly. Who's like the fourth or fifth person in charge? They'd be like, Mark Shifley, come and get the O'Brien yeah. Trophy. He's yeah. like, what, me? And like some some Canadian celebrity comes in, the cast of Letter Kenny is out yeah. there doing the honors or something. Yeah, like that, it'd be great. Let's let's do it. 100%. We can, we can drink Tim Hortons out of it and uh, it'll... Uh, It'll be a very good, and the Americans will be completely confused uh, and have no idea what's going on. Probably yeah. not even be aware of it. Uh, got another question in here. Uh, this one comes in from Tyler, who wants to know, guys, what do you think? Of, and, I, and this will be a tough one to answer a little bit because the Dallas Stars uh, have yet to play as of this recording. Uh, what do you think about the Dallas Stars? Do you guys think they're headed for a drop off this year? Yeah, the Dallas is one of the teams I've really struggled with trying to figure out where to put them uh, in, in terms of the tiers. Uh, because on the one hand, uh, this was a team that I, I think last year they were certainly a, a, my my first thought is this was a good team that went on a run in the playoffs. They had a backup goalie, a career backup who got hot at exactly the right time, played some of the best hockey of his entire career, and that got them to within a couple of wins of the Stanley Cup, and that's great. But we see teams do that almost every year, and they almost always take a step back. So you you start off and you say, okay, let's let's assume that they're a middle-of-the-pack team that can do some damage in the playoffs if everything goes perfect. But then you look at last year, remember Dallas got off to this terrible start, and then they were really good. After the first month of the season, they were, if you, you, you can't do it, but if you cut October off of last season, the Dallas Stars were right there with Tampa and Boston and all the other best teams, and then continued at the playoffs. So I feel like I ultimately did kind of put them in my contender group because I figured they've they've earned that. But um, it 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 wouldn't shock me at all to see. Uh, I mean, Tyler says a big drop off. I don't know 
what a big drop off would be. I still think they're a playoff team. I still think they're going to be dangerous for Tampa or Carolina, whoever they run up against in the, in the playoffs. Um, but I, I could certainly see them being one of those teams that we look back on and go, yeah, they were a Stanley Cup finalist because they got hot at the right time. Yeah, and I, I wonder, you would know the answer to this. I, I feel like it, maybe it's Montreal-Boston from back in the day, but with the divisions being reseeded, like when's the last time the two teams that met in the Stanley Cup were in the same division? Yeah, it's 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 been a while. I mean, yeah. back in the 70s and early 80s, there were all sorts of different formats where teams in the same division could play, and, and uh, that, that wasn't all that unusual. But certainly since then, I, I mean... We've seen teams move around, but uh, you know, it didn't didn't happen with Detroit. I don't think, and I'm not even sure what the other options would be. So yeah, it's 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 very unusual that we'll see this many Stanley Cup final rematches over the course of a season, assuming Dallas can get back out there and play. Yeah, exactly. All right, hey, listen, as we always do uh, with the uh, the Athletic Hockey Show on Thursdays, we wrap up with a little this week in hockey history because that is right up. Uh, Sean Zally. So got a couple of things for you here. This is actually the 30th anniversary this week, Sean, of one of the most memorable All-Star games from when we were kids. And that was the All-Star game at the old Chicago Stadium, 1991. Um, remember the, 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 the amazing anthem from uh, Wayne Mesmer? Um, and then the game itself. Here's my theory, okay? To me, this is when the All-Star game actually went to hell. Because okay. Vinny Domfu scored okay. four goals in that game, Sean, and yeah. that was it. Before that, if I'm not, you you would know this. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Gretzky and Lemieux were the only guys to get four goals in an All Star yep. game, like in modern history. Dom Foos got it, and then all of a sudden, it was like everybody had four goals in an All Star game after that, yep. right? That is. I mean, I I get what's happening here. You're blaming the Maple Leafs for ruining the All Star game. I, I I I get it. I hear. Wait, you. was he was but, he with Toronto? He wasn't with Edmonton. Yeah, at that no, point? he was he was uh, he was a Maple Leaf. He he was. It would have been that offseason that he was traded to uh, to Edmonton. Yeah. I, I remember as a as a Leafs fan being. Thrilled that, uh, uh, geez, that our guy was getting any any ice. So we were used to sending like the Gary Lehman and uh, those sorts of guys to the All Star game. So, um, but yeah, that that may have been that was right around the time where uh, the All Star game went from like this fun high scoring thing to maybe being a little bit out of control. I think it was the year before that Mario had had the big year in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and that was Mario. You're like, yeah, this this is great. This guy's amazing. Let's uh, you know who else could ever do something like that? And then. Vinny Danfoos is like, actually, I could do it too. And, and uh, it, we were we were pretty excited in Toronto, but I think uh, I think uh, there, there were probably some side eyes in the rest of the hockey world. And I think that, if I'm not mistaken too, was that not the weekend where Ally Afraidy dominated the skills competition? Yeah, I can't. I remember I think, uh, I think that, so. that was either 91 or 90. It was, it was right around there where he, he broke out the skullet. And, yeah. uh, you know, there, there was also, and then there, when he went to... Uh, um, I think a few years later in, in Washington, he had another big one. But yeah, that was kind of Ally Hefredi's coming out party. That and getting deked out of his out of his shorts by Mario in the in the Pittsburgh game are his his most memorable All Star moments. Uh, so, and also on this uh, this week in hockey history, Sean, uh, little known defenseman Neil Sheehy makes his way into this week in hockey history. January 24th, 1988, Whalers defenseman Neil Sheehy uh, became the first, and I believe the only player. Uh, in NHL history, to wear the jersey number zero in a hockey game. Well, like you're a you're as good of a hockey historian as anybody. What's the deal with Neil Sheehy wearing zero? Yeah, I you know I don't know exactly where that comes from. He is, I believe, the only player to ever wear zero. There's there's some dispute on that because back in the the old days, um, the the record keeping wasn't as good, and there's some photos and and uh, references to other players maybe wearing it, but. There were a couple guys who wore double zero, Martin um, Baron and John Davidson, goaltenders. But uh, Neil Sheehy wore zero and, and is the only one and will apparently remain the only one because it's no longer allowed that players can wear zero, which I don't understand because I, I think it's cool. Like you very rarely see players in pro sports wearing the zero or the double zero. But I love it when it happens. I remember, like I, I remember the old uh, the eighty five Blue Jays where they had their two DHs, one wore zero and one yeah. wore double zero. I thought that was awesome. You know, it'd be, I think that would be a cool number to allow. But apparently, it's some sort of data entry, like the database won't accept it or something because it's uh, well, zeros, which seems to, to me like to that a new point database. though, where I, where I will give them maybe there's a little bit of uh, credence to that. Their official system can't handle the umlaut U for Timmy yeah. Schutzla. Yeah, so, I said the 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 best uh, the best line I saw in that was where they're trying to put his his name in, and there's all these question marks, and I don't know if you saw, it, but somebody said 
isn't it perfect that somebody who was drafted by Alex Trebek now has their name in the form of a question? That's and amazing. I just thought that was that was a great line. But uh, yeah, the, it, Neil Sheehy is is one of those great guys because he's he's the only guy with zero. He is if 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 the name sounds familiar to you, it may be because he's now an agent. He's he's a player agent. He's he's got some some high profile clients. Uh, but the other thing, and this is. This is a deep cut. You have to have been reading my stuff for a long time to know this. But Neil Sheehy is also the guy that we can blame for a wonderful late 80s, early 90s trend in the NHL, which was NHL teams making lip sync rock videos uh, where Neil Sheehy was the guy. He, he was on the Calgary Flames when they did Can't Touch a Flame when it's red hot, which if you haven't seen it, Stop what you're doing, pull the car over, and get on YouTube and find that. And it's fantastic. And then he gets uh, traded over to the Washington Capitals, and they go on a run where every, for every year, for like three years, they get together in Rod Langway's sports bar and tape the cheese. Like, if you ever want to see Scott Stevens or Dino Cicerelli pretend to play the saxophone, this is this is your dream. And Neil Sheehy actually got like a, uh, a record producer credit on some of those. So, uh, I don't know, man. It, it, that is, to me, that is a life lived and a career lived in the NHL. If you can be the answer to multiple trivia questions about jersey numbers and uh, uh, producer credits on absolutely terrible lip sync rock songs. I, I kind of feel like we now need to reach out to Neil Sheehy and bring him on this podcast. He is. I, I have referred to him when it comes to terrible NHL music. He is literally patient zero for uh, for the NHL uh, in, in terms of that. And it's fitting uh, given the jersey he wore. Okay, well, you know what? Maybe we will. Maybe we'll reach out to him, see if he'll join us. He can explain the number zero uh, and some of the other things. We'll try to uh, chase him down uh, for a future show. Hey, listen, Sean, that's uh, all the time we have for this one. A lot of fun. Uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the games this weekend. Should be a lot of fun. I'm going to try to. Thanks. <laughs> Spoken like a true Leafs fan. Hey, yeah. thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. So we'll talk to you again next week. Reminder, uh, hit us up with any questions at theathletichockeyshow at gmail.com. Or again, you can leave us a voicemail at 845-445-8459. And if you're not an Athletic subscriber, join us at theathletic.com slash hockey show.